I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we could all do much better. Hi, and welcome to episode four of our Tree Amble podcast. Welcome back. Wakelands is an amazing small farm in Suffolk. We met David and talked about the legacy of his parents who set up the farm and which now he and his brother are taking forward. The Wakelands approach is about experimentation with agroforestry systems, and here in particular, mixing arable and trees in a silvo-arable system. It's a place that's joyful to visit, loads of people, a number of small linked businesses producing from the land, and importantly for me, everywhere I went, bird noise. I hope you enjoy this one. So morning, David. Good morning. We're at Wakelands Farm in Suffolk. It's lovely to have you here. So thanks so much for having us. Um, I'm a Suffolk lad, so I remember um, from my teens cycling around all these lanes and that was my, I suppose, my first experience of some of the Suffolk Commons and all the churches. I used to go yeah. and sit in churchyards and have a supper and, or, or lunch or whatever. Um, but the first time I came to Wakelands was when your father was here, so Martin. Yes. Which must be 15, even 16 years Could ago. well be, yeah. And I found this to be one of the most influential things that changed my mind about how we could run trees and farming together. Yeah. So tell me about your background. What are you doing? So um, I am, uh, in my day job, I'm an environmental lawyer, and I yeah. still do that. So that's my kind of backstory, if you like. But um, uh, I have ended up with my brother inheriting Wakelands from my parents. Um, they bought Wakelands uh, in 1992, uh, at a point where my uh, dad was uh, a few years away from retirement. Yeah. And it was intended to be their kind of retirement home-come-project uh, and it became rather more than a project, it became a sort of massive endeavour, but that was the intention. Um, so they then planted uh, the first agroforestry trees here in 1994. So that's the kind of backstory to Wakelands. Um, the reason they were interested in that was that uh, Martin, my dad, had been an agricultural scientist working for the British government and then the Swiss government uh, for his ordinary working life, and he had been doing interesting, innovative stuff uh, around barley mildew, as it happens, but he was a plant pathologist, um, really focused on um, a sort of theme of trying to reduce the inputs of manufactured chemicals. So in the early days of sort of pre-organic kind of thinking. Um, but he wanted to do things that were more innovative. And at the time of his retirement, he was coming up to 60, um, one of the things that was being talked about around the world uh, was a formalised systems of agroforestry. So, of course, we have plenty of examples of um, traditional agroforestry, pigs in orchards, olive trees in wheat fields in Spain, that kind of thing. But this kind of formalised, planted, structured, 
organised agroforestry, I think, was simply uh, uh, an idea in people's heads. So this is kind of rows of trees. Rows of trees and doing it in a very um, uh, organised way. And so he uh, and my mum had this opportunity then to do this project. And uh, he being the sort of itinerant scientist, they didn't just set out to plant one lot of agroforestry. They planted really um, uh, four or five, five or six, depending on how you count it, areas of agroforestry at Wakelands. So we have 23 hectares, uh, so 56 acres, um, and that's then been planted up into five or so big areas of agroforestry. I say big, big by our standards, tiny by most farming standards, Um, each of which is different, each of which is characterised by different alley spacings and different tree combinations to show different things, um, and each of which was intended really to be an experimental demonstration, call it what you like, plot. So I think when you probably came here 15 years ago, you were seeing, I mean, well, it still would have been 10 years in at that point, you were seeing the early version of that. Um, So what then happens, so I'll talk about the tree lines in a minute, but then what happens in the alleys is um, an organic rotation. So obviously you can have agroforestry without organic, and you can have organic without agroforestry, but they put the two in here. So in the alleys, 56 alleys, um, in, um, well, they had a more complicated system, but we now have a four-year organic rotation cycling round um, wheat and lentils and fertility building lays and now hemp and other things. But in terms of the trees, um, basically the different areas are this. There's an area of short rotation hazel coppicing. So that's double hedges of hazels coppiced on a seven-year cycle each row done seven year cycle so that generates um, uh, three meter lengths of hazel which are used for fencing and hedging and so on and then a remainder which is chipped for biomass so we have huge pile of chipped biomass to go to feed our uh, boiler for heating the house and so on Um, that's the first area second area is fruit trees so we have something like 40 sorts of apples then pears plums quinces cherries in a very mixed system mixed because the best place to plant an apple tree is a wood the worst place to plant an apple tree is an orchard so we have apple trees in what is a bit like a dispersed wood that gives us a fantastic variety of flavors of a long season Mm -hmm. fantastic resilience to seasonal annual variabilities we always get a good crop Um, and so on it gives us a massive operational challenge i'll come back to that in a minute Uh, but that is agroforestry fruit trees in a very diverse and dispersed way then we have an area of um, timber trees so these are planted in 1994 so now coming up to 30 years old Um, so a long way yet from being mature uh, hardwood timber but oaks uh, ashes hornbeams sycamores uh, some cherries um, uh, effectively as a timber crop so that's another different area of agroforestry then we have um, a couple of variants on that and then we have an area of uh, willow coppiced uh, which is um, again a bit like the hazel coppiced this time on a three-year cycle um, again for fencing and hedging and the remainder is biomass so different styles of agroforestry within the tree line so the tree lines run north south to maximize the sunshine in the gaps um, and our spacing is it varies between 12 and 18 meters um, because those were the spacings that as sort of first movers my parents alighted upon I think people now are doing wider spacings so our experience is that other people lots of people have come to Wakeland seen those things and the joy of it other farmers have gone away and done their own versions of that 
they've done apple trees or they've done timber trees or they've done rotation coppicing, um, but there are different versions of that. So the thing about Wakelins is you have a sort of early demonstration of a range of different approaches from which we can not only learn about the sort of longitudinal effect, but we can also, people can draw inspiration for how they can do it better or differently. That's an amazing summary. Thank you. Um, in terms of the science, so I know Martin was very keen on science, yep. so actually monitoring success, monitoring what's going on. Um, in that 30-year period, we've now, we know that climate change is now kicking in. Mm. We've got severe and severe summers, we've got mm -hmm. droughts kicking in. Um, how is that monitoring persisting? And, and are you monitoring the same things now as you were then, or have you changed your monitoring? Um, so... Uh difficult one because because really his focus was on the very specific um, interactions um, between the agroforestry and the agriculture and the farming um, uh, so he was looking he and the ORC people were looking at quite short-term experiments looking at how the trees affected the soil how the trees affected moisture mm. how much biomass you needed to heat a house that kind of thing um, and not really looking at longitudinal stuff. So, so I know this might sound a bit surprising, but we don't really have longitudinal data or studies. Um, so my, I have two kind of uh, practical responses to that. One is um, people come here and they say, have you got um, longitudinal studies or whatever it might, what you call them, of um, how the biodiversity has changed? And I say, well, no, we haven't. We've got a lot of current surveys of our fantastic bird population and the bats and the um, uh, badgers and the, and the uh, hares and all the deer and all the rest of it, lots of information about that, but we don't know what that looked like in 1992 yeah. or 1994. Yeah. But you can look up across the hedge I and see the rest of Suffolk and count, and count the, you know, see what's going on elsewhere. So, so what, what's amazing about this, if you see the, the photographs online of Wakelands, there's a kind of almost, almost a bat-shaped site yeah. in sea, yeah. arable. Yeah. And that's East and Anglia. I mean, that's not that just that's just not just the neighbours. So, so yeah. we have comparables, if not historic. We have current comparables, if yeah. not historic comparables. Immediately next door. Immediately next. Well, and beyond. I mean, I don't want to be mean to my neighbour. Um, he's no. He's not exceptional compared to other farmers no. in in East Anglia. So one of the things which uh, emerged from this was population weeds, mm -hmm. and I was really quite excited by that when I was here. Um, is, is that still something you're? you're yeah, I mean, it's, it's not it's not a sort of I mean, it's a sort of side project, not a necessary part of the agroforestry, mm. um, but we're still doing the stuff. Um, so yes, I can talk about population wheats. So population wheats are interesting. Um, uh, just to sort of go back to sort of base zero for people who are not on the detail. Um, conventional modern wheats grown across Europe. There are probably only half a dozen of the majority of wheats grown across Europe. Um, each of those is a genetic pure line. So you can go to a field of, let's say, Skyfall in East Anglia or Bavaria or, you know, whatever, and it's going to be exactly the same genetically as every other field of Skyfall. Every plant in the field is genetically different, identical to every other plant in the field. So it is um, perfectly tuned if you get your combination of weather and um, uh, manufactured chemicals and so on right, you will get a homogenous product for baking or milling or whatever it might be. Um, but you've also created the greatest risk. So you've, not only do you have to chase, the, 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 the breeders have to chase the pathogens, the chemicals have to chase the pathogens, and you've got a maximised risk situation. What my uh, dad was looking at in the 1970s, he was looking at what they called mixtures. So they would mix five varieties of barley in a field, literally just take the seeds, mix them, grow a mixture and see what happened. And that uh, gave a greater resilience to pathogens. That was his thing. I mean, we now understand 
properly, we understand how um, pandemics work, don't we? You know, if, if we were all genetically identical, we would all we might all be okay, but we might all get COVID. Yeah. That's the problem. So um, what they then did with populations in about 2001, he worked with um, people at the John Innes Centre in Norwich and um, uh, the Organic Research Centre who were then working uh, Wakelands. Um, and they took um, 20 varieties of wheat, essentially modern wheats, uh, and they crossed them to produce 190 genetically different children. And they planted those genetically different children out into the field. And we've then repeated that every year. So 20 years on, we now have... Um, the evolutionary effect, if that's the right word, of 20 years of that being done in the field. Um, uh, and um, so when you look at a conventional field of wheat, every plant in the field looks the same. They're all the same height. They're all the same ear size, whatever it might be. Um, uh, a field of our YQ population wheat, every plant looks different. Now, there's an open question about whether, in fact, every plant is different or whether we just have a a number of pure lines that have evolved over time. Mm -hmm. Nobody's yet answered that question. Somebody can do that PhD. However, what we are doing this year is a, is a, a, a bit of a quirky, uh, call it an experiment if you like, which is that um, over the years, various farmers around the country have taken, you know, 20 kilos or whatever of YQ from Wakelands, the population, planted it in their own farms and are now growing it in their own locations. Um, and what is interesting is that when that, uh, their uh, wheat is then milled and baked, it mills differently and it bakes differently and it tastes different. Mm -hmm. So the question has been, um, is that different because it has evolved in their locations, they have a different population to us now, or is it simply their locations? Um, again, nobody can answer that question. So we are doing a bit of an experiment this year. We have, um, I think of it as a bit like migration. The YQ is a population and it has migrated. Yeah. So we're repatriating some. We've yeah. repatriated some YQ from three farms, um, one where it's been growing for, I think, 10 years, one six and one three. Um, around the country, uh, each of which we know grows differently in those locations, but we've now brought some back. So we've got a field where there's an alley of, as it were, never left the site YQ population wheat and an alley of wheat that left left and has been growing somewhere else yeah. and has now come back. Yeah. So in the summer, we'll be able to tell you whether the YQ that's been in Nottinghamshire for six years, when regrown in Suffolk, is actually like the stuff that's never left Suffolk or whether it's actually different. So is it John Turner's soil, his weather, his farming practices yeah. that makes his YQ different, or is it now a different population? And is that is that seed now marketable? Can you market that? Um, it's never been marketed. It's completely, it's open source. There's a question about how, well, so marketable is different, so there's two issues. Marketable, uh, it's not legally settable as, no. as seed because yeah. of... Um, restrictions on uh, selling pure lines. There was a period when there was a derogation from those regulations um, and you could sell uh, populations. I think that has now come to an end. So there's a legal question about that. Um, uh, in terms of its, um, however, there are, not, there are people who got the seed in those that period and are now growing it, as I've explained. Um, in terms of the um, uh, 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 intellectual property, um, uh, it was always treated by um, uh, ORC and Martin as being open source. Um, and so, uh, uh, and it's hard to see how that could be any different because because in the nature of a population, it's so variable. It's so, variable. Yeah. Um, so I think um, what uh, people have talked about, and I think this is the only way you could do it, is you need traceability. You need to know that this is um, come from the Wakelands YQ. And if you were setting up a sort of manufacturing, a sort of marketing process, you would have a 
process whereby people would say, look, this came from the Wakelands population or whatever population, and I've only grown it this way and I haven't mixed it. And there has to be a degree of trust and self-certification. Mm. Um, and certainly I have seen people um, claiming to be selling Wakelands YQ population wheat, not, not, not for farmers, but for bakers, mm. and I know it's not. So there is an issue around marketing, and but I would never want that to become, and I know my dad would never have wanted that to become a sort of property question or, or whatever. It's a question of traceability and integrity and consumer protection. Yeah. It's not about um, some form of sort of um, exclusivity. Mm. The reason I'm asking these questions is I'm, I was fascinated when I came in to think about the idea of rows of trees mm -hmm. in a silvo-arable situation within which is grown interesting mm -hmm. material. So, as you said earlier, you could actually put conventional wheats mm -hmm. through these alleys. It doesn't have to be non mm -hmm. it could be that, and you could you could fertilise the hell out of them. It doesn't really matter. And then have your alleys. Yep. But you can actually do all other interesting things. And that was the that was the twist for me about this particular site, was your dad was always looking for innovation and interest and change and challenge. And I really liked that when I came here. Okay, so let me tell you about a third innovation yeah. to add the complexity to your, to your, your description, which is absolutely fair. Um, uh, we have always been, in, I've always been interested in having a vineyard. Okay. Okay. And indeed, we have a field, one of our fields, Anna Martin, my parents called it vineyard field, but they never planted the vines. If only they planted the vines, I would now have a 30-year-old <laughs> vineyard. No, damn. Anyway, um, as you probably know, vineyards traditionally, conventionally, I say, look like a grid. Um, a metre and a half between each vine and then lines of vines a couple of metres apart. That is great for walking up and down with a pair of secateurs or picking the grapes. Very easy operationally. Yeah. Um, it is also very easy for the airborne pathogens, which are a particular problem for vines, to spread through the field. Okay? It's also very easy to then come along and spray it. So if your approach is um, very operationally simplistic and um, involve, is happy to involve lots of um, manufactured chemicals to control your airborne pathogens, that works brilliantly. And that is most of what I think most of what vine growing is about. Yeah. Organic vine growing is quite a challenge. Yep. Um, we had a visit last year from a woman in Holland who was growing um, lines of vines in a wheat field. Okay, so it wasn't agroforestry, yeah. it was yeah. lines of vine in a wheat field with a big gap in between. So she had lines of, vi of great lines of vines with wheat. Agroforestry, but not with trees. Yeah, yeah or yeah. Okay. call it what you like. Didn't have a disease problem. I thought, great idea. We have a f one of our areas of planting is widely spaced tree lines with, for historic reasons, the trees being quite spread apart. So what we have just done literally last week, and, in, and again more on Friday, is to plant vines in the gaps between the trees. So we have little um, two, four or six, sometimes eight or ten vines and then a tree. Two, four or six, eight, ten vines and then a tree. So the reason to do that is, is that land in between those trees, because of the spacing of the trees, wasn't really doing anything for me. It's, it's grass, it's a bit of rewilding, that's fine, whatever. But it's not doing anything more productive than that. You're not even very good rewilding. With any luck, we will now get um, a vine, a grape, a wine crop from those agroforestry trees. So... Um, if you like, that's a third system. You've got you've got um, cereals in the alleys, yeah. you've got trees, and then you've got vines in in the gaps. And people have said to me, "Well, the trees will shade the vines, or whatever." Well, maybe they will, but even if I get any grapes, that's more than I'm getting at the moment. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's only a net sum gained. So it's almost kind of a forest gardening, isn't it? Well, it, it, well, it, well, it is. It's kind of going in that yeah. direction, but still in a very structured kind of way. So in terms of 
for me, the, the joy of this is it's a fantastic experiment. It looks great. It's a fantastic place to walk around. But how replicable is this? Now, so the, for, the point about this really is that we replicate this into some other system somewhere else that provides us with the benefits of what's happening here and removes some of the disbenefits that are happening in the wider world. And I'm thinking about climate change, shade and shelter for animals, and even mixtures of cropping and, and disease. I mean, how, how replicable is this? And, and, and who's coming here to learn? So, so I would never sort of put weightlings forward as, as a sort of... Um, this is a template that you should copy as it is. I mean, there's more, I'll talk a bit more about the other things that are going on here that we've had to do to make it operationally sort of work and so on. Um, I would never say this is a template that people should copy just as it is for the sake of it. Um, in a way, what we are doing, I think, is carrying on what my parents were doing, which is to show different components of things that people can then pick and mix to suit their situation. Yeah. Um, we get a lot of visitors who are farmers, um, uh, which is great, um, some of whom have gone away and done agroforestry, some of whom have been inspired by Wakelins, and they all pick and mix and say, this works for me and I'll do that bit. And Because I think one of the things about agroforestry is it is a very, um, it's not like having a field and say, right, I'm going to grow wheat, and that's like your neighbour's wheat field or the wheat field down the road. Agroforestry is always going to be specific to the location and the climate and your finances and your tenure on your land and your aspirations. You know, are you looking to produce food out of your tree lines or are you looking to produce... Um, long-term timber or are you looking to sequester as much carbon as possible or so each of those questions will inform your agroforestry decision so I hope Wakelands continues to be able to provide um, some ideas and some inspiration and some visual realization of those things but I would never want to say to somebody you go and do this the other thing about Wakelands is it's really very small it's only 56 acres which yeah. by the standards of a cereal type farm and defra regard that as below the threshold well, yeah. you know it's not a it's a, from their point of view it's horticulture they classify us as horticulture um because of the scale of it yeah. um and within that as i said it's divided up into areas of five acres so so um uh you could do and people are doing over 100 acres on a, sorry, on a hundred acre field, what we're doing in five. Mm. And really that's how I see Wakelands as fitting in. Okay. People come here and they see, what does it look like 25 years on? How am I gonna make that work? Mm. And, and um, understandably people want to see, well, this is what lines of trees look like after 25 years. I can see the operational benefits and the operational challenges. And I need to think about how I'm gonna do my version of it. So that's how I see Wakelands as fitting in. Um. I know we, we have a bit of a hang-up about the word regenerative, mm. and, and I can understand why that would be the case here as well. Whether you call it regenerative or not, I find the regenerative space very interesting mm -hmm. in as much as that, that opens up that conversation, the sharing of information mm -hmm. willingly, openly, mm -hmm. is very much part of that movement. And where I've been talking to people in the last few days, they've been so open about what they're doing and wanting to share what their experience is. And everybody's experience is slightly different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Our land is this, we can do this on this land. Mm -hmm. We learned from this person over here and that person learned from that person. Yeah, they yeah. did it differently over there. And they're in Cumbria and we're in Kent or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I am fascinated by that, by the fact that you've, this, you're, the sharing part of what you're doing and the community behind that. Yes, so, so um, well, I suppose what I haven't yet talked about is this, which is that my parents, as I mentioned, set up an organic agroforestry set of experiments or an yeah. experiment set of experiments, what you like. But it was never, um, it was very much focused on doing the science around that in a very um, kind of agricultural kind of way. 
Um, and it was never intended to be either operationally or let alone financially sustainable. Um, so, for example, we have all these lovely apple trees. They never attempted to pick all the apples because they didn't have the sort of operational systems to do it. Yeah. So, um, Mand and I arrived here in... Uh, my mum died in 2016, my dad in 2019. We arrived here effectively in 2020 and um, had a season where we, for example, we paid local people to pick the cherries and we got the best part of a tonne of cherries and it was absolutely fantastic and we sold them and we made a massive loss because the... Because <laughs> the, because the um, even the, the chintzy vegetable shop in Southwold wouldn't pay us enough because her customers wouldn't pay her enough yep. to cover even our labour costs, yep. right? So it's not possible, OK? You can't farm cherries like that in East Anglia. It's not, it's not doable. Um, so our answer, and you replicate that answer in relation to the wheat and the lentils and whatever, our answer has been twofold, and then there's an extra component. The twofold is short food chains and enterprise stacking. So the short food chains means we no longer sell cherries or flour um, uh, or lentils or whatever. We sell bread and cherry pies and apple juice and i'm slightly simplifying for effect but you get the idea so that's short food chains we supply um uh, bread into the local community we supply um we feed people who come here that kind of thing when i say we that's where the enterprise stacking comes in it's not actually me or my family it's henrietta inman who is our on-site chef baker Mm -hmm. she we set up and she runs the wakelin's bakery but that is her separate business so she is an example, and we now have half a dozen of what we call stacked enterprises. So this is not us diversifying into other things. It's not us renting out bits of land to other people. These are enterprises which are integrated and stacked into our community of businesses, working in an integrated kind of way, but they're all separate businesses. So there's now a number of businesses running based here, some like Henrietta or our vegetable growing group, full-time, based here all the time. Some are more part-time, some using land, some using buildings, all connected to the land and so on. So that's how we... So Henrietta is part-time fruit-picking manager, part-time baker. So she is the one who is monitoring when this particular apple is coming into fruit, and she's the one who's deciding that that's good for apple juice or apple pies or chutney, and then making it into apple juice or apple pies or chutney and selling the apple juice or the apple pies or the chutney. So that's her business. But her food business is completely integrated into the farming. Yeah. Similarly, the other businesses. We've got a woman who's growing hemp here, a woman who's looking after bees here. We've got willow weavers here. So they are all stacked enterprises. So, And then the last component for us is people. Um, We think... Uh, food and farming and so on is all about the people whether this is about not just feeding people in a sort of um, a sort of um, production kind of way but also people understanding where their food comes from enjoying where their food comes from helping to grow their food and so on so a lot of what we do is about inviting people here to visit to work to study to take photographs um, to do events and courses we run a lot of activities here um, as well as all those other people um, because for us, in the end, the main product is well-being. Um, that's the main output. And we are very interested, in a general sense, um, uh, we are not just interested in farming less badly. And, and I think a lot of... And I understand the sort of political inertia and so on. Yeah. A lot of what's <clears throat> going on in the bigger space is about farming less badly. And that's fine. Obviously, that's a good thing. We are interested in the land as being much more of a um, central point than that. So for us, the outputs, if you like, are, um, yes, food or food products rather than raw food. Um, Yes, um, carbon sequestered. um, 
massive increase in biodiversity, uh, but also employment and well-being and uh, people living here um, and a whole range of other components. And we are interested in seeing quite how productive we can make this land be. And that's where stacking enterprises and stacking activities is part of the picture because we think and in a way agroforestry is a is a sort of um, good starting point for that because you immediately you're stacking activities and enterprises you're immediately doing multiple things in the same space and um there's this expression in how they calculate it the land equivalent ratio we are looking if you like at the land equivalent ratio what can we get out of these 56 acres how many turtle doves can we have how many great crested newts can we have how many cherry pies can we produce how many people can earn a living here how much karma can we sequester and we think the answer is a lot more than doing those things separately let alone just having as east anglia is characterized by big fields of um commodity wheats which are entirely reliant on manufactured uh, uh, chemical inputs because the soil is shot so it's a much bigger <laughs> land use question from our point of view so there's a few loaded things in that isn't there i mean, I mean land being shot i think that's that's fascinating for me is is how we've pushed land so hard mm. that it now it, it, it is only driven by chemicals so we've removed the biology of the soil and, re- and we've, we've replaced it with the chemical agriculture. Mm-hmm. And so lots of my conversations have been about how do, we, how do we get back from chemical agriculture into biodiverse agriculture, which has soils at the heart of it. And I know there's been a lot of conversation about that, but it's hard to see in a landscape like this that that's happening at scale yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the idea that vast areas of land are actually not very productive mm-hmm. in this system. So how do we how do we restore productivity? How do we restore biology across, yeah. a, across a large landscape in the economic and social and political construct we have? Uh, well, you can change hearts and minds um, uh, of consumers or farmers, and and um, as I say, we get lots of farmers or landowners coming here to talk to us, and. Um, my assumption, I mean, I think it must be true, is that they are the people whose, you know, whose minds are already open to change, um, because they come here to have self-selecting. A look. Yeah, very, very well, entirely yeah. self-selecting. You know, yeah. they come here to see whether they want to do what, some yeah. version of this, and many of them go away and do it, and that's absolutely fantastic. And I've got lots of examples of people who are doing that. It's great, um, but they're not the majority. So, how you change the hearts and minds of other landowners and farmers? Um, um, I mean, entirely understandably, really, um, existing landowners and farmers have um, grown up in a financial, essentially financial system of subsidies, since or well, financial system of subsidies and policy imperatives, if you like, but that's manifested in the subsidies, which have encouraged certain sorts of behaviours really since, what is it, 1946 or yeah. whatever it was, the Agriculture yeah. Act was. Um, and that those um, and I don't blame them for that at all. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a culpability question. Um, they have responded to the way in which government policy and so on has driven those things. And the main driver of that, of course, is subsidies. Um, so so um, I mean, if you look at the DEFRA data from um, twenty twenty the season twenty twenty one, for example, you look at the DEFRA data for that season on cereal farms in England. Um, the average uh, cereal farmer's income after all their expenses, so turnover of £300,000 is the figure, income £72,000 of that from agriculture, £2,700. So they're not earning, in that year, and years vary, they didn't earn money from agriculture. Their £72,000 came from overwhelmingly subsidy and diversification. So solar panels, renting out your barns for storing caravans and for car mechanics, yeah? So... What is interesting then is that the big driver for those people, entirely understandably, is where those other imperatives come from. Solar panels and car mechanics, on the one hand, subsidies on the other. And we've had a system 
of you know the basic payments through the rural payments agency of basically paying farmers £100 an acre to pretty much do what they like, regardless. Um, I find that quite an extraordinary system because I can't think of any other sector of our society which is so heavily subsidised and yet is so uncontrolled. You know, of course we have nationalised, you know, we pay doctors to do things, we pay all sorts of things, but then we tell them how to do it. Mm. Whereas farmers are basically given, here's £100 an acre to farm what you like, badly or well, yeah. you know, by using whatever techniques you like, um, with no real you know, constraints at the margins, but not really constraints. So that's a pretty extraordinary system to have set up. Um, so if you want to change that, your question, I've gone away from your question, your question is how do you want to change it? I'm, I'm delighted by your answer. Your question right. is how do you change that? You change yeah. the, the structure of the payment system. Yeah. Now, we're in an interesting time because we are um, in the evolution and early days of the new ELM system. Yeah. Um, we think. Uh, we, we think. think. Well, we, we think. think. Yeah. We're on a journey, yeah. aren't we, politically? <laughs> yep. Um, uh, uh, when the ELM system was first proposed by Michael Gove, Secretary of State, first Secretary of State to sort of look at it, I think, uh, it looked like it was going to be a real break with the past and some really innovative ideas and some really innovative drivers. Um, and the impression one gets is that that's then been reined in by the less, um, perhaps less, uh, uh, progressive forces than Michael Gove is capable of being. Choose my words carefully. Um, uh, so there we are. So what we now have is uh, a system which, yes, um, there are warm words about how it will encourage agroforestry, um, for example. Yeah. We have the Sustainable Farming in, uh, Incentive. The SFIs, is, yeah. Is it the I for Incentive, I think? Uh, I think Initiative? Incentive. Can't remember that. Well, one, SFI, one, yeah. uh, where farmers are being paid to improve their soil. Yeah. I mean, it's an extraordinary proposition, isn't it? Why do we have to pay farmers to improve their soil? Yeah. You might have thought farmers would want to maintain their soil well anyway, but we've created an environment in which we've paid them to not look after their soil. We now have to pay them to look after their soil pretty mad well i, I, I would in, say i work in cumbria we have plenty of options where we, we're paying them not to graze yeah it's it's you know yeah. it's the same that, that i'm just talking about the bits i know about it's or know about i know a bit about um so so really that is where i mean i think we can we can get government to change those drivers and um, we may have to wait a long time we may not get what we want and so on so we have to do more than that so we do have to inspire um hearts and minds mm. uh, and apply wider political social societal whatever it might be uh, encouragement and pressure. Mm. Um, uh, I was talking to a woman the other day who was doing a project at university um, on the mental health of farmers, yeah. and she's looking at whether, I mean, in simple terms, my... Um, Your sort of... My, my, well, whether, whether, whether her proposition is, are regenerative farmers happier, and if so, why? Yeah. And, and um, uh, um, I mean, there may be many reasons why they are, because they may be a self-selecting bunch. The happy ones may go and do... Re so I don't know what she's going to show, but the basic question is an interesting one, um, because I think, um, going back to the community of people you're talking to, people who are feeling beleaguered by an old-fashioned subsidy system, who are feeling like they're perhaps not quite in touch with modern thinking on climate change and pollution and so on, but who feel trapped to some extent, yeah, as I'm yeah. sure a lot of them do, yeah. by that... Um, treadmill or whatever the right word is, um, uh, are in, it'd be no surprise that they were less happy. Um, you know, if you've just bought a combine harvester for hundreds of thousands of pounds on a 25-year finance payment that is premised on a particular set of behaviours and farming, and if you don't make the payments, the finance company will remote turn it off from the satellite, then you don't look like, doesn't look like you've got many choices, does it? It's so a, I understand. It's a treadmill and you're stuck to it and, stuck you've got to it and you're leaving that to your yeah. children and, you know, yeah. what do you do? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of ways we can break those those systems and I think we've got to try and do that. You see, I think I think the people I've spoken to are generally happier, yeah. actually. I think one of the reasons they're happier is they've moved from being behind 
behind the, the curve to in front of it. They're pushing, they're changing, they're observing, they're going out and measuring stuff. Mm -hmm. They're actively farming mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. a different way. They've chosen to change. And then there's something in the driving seat. Yeah. I want to do this, so they're in the driving seat. And then they're talking to other people who've done similar things. You know, I mean, it, it'd be nice to think this, this, this movement's an old movement, but, you know, we had Gabe Brown's book in about 2000, didn't we, saying about his crop failure and then how he changed and moved on. It feels relatively young. I know you've been here 30 years, mm. or this farm's been here 30, but it's still a relatively young movement, isn't mm -hmm. it? Mm. And those slow, early changes are now being picked up at some pace, I think. But the people who are picking up, I think, are generally happier and more connected than other people. That's, the, my, that's my feeling. Yeah, oh, well, I, 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 that, that, in a sense, that's no surprise for a range of, of reasons. Um, I mean, I think it's almost possibly more recent than that, in the sense that a lot of the things that you and I are talking about are around things like climate change and biodiversity and food crisis and so on. And those are not new issues, but they are issues which are um, uh, in the public discourse now in a way that they weren't five or 10 or 15 or 20 yeah. years ago. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a... It's a who knows what the graph looks like, but, you know, talk to somebody about climate change in the pub 10 years ago and you might have not got a conversation out of it. Now yeah. everybody's got a view. Um, and so uh, farming or land use is at the centre of all of those debates, crises, call them what you like. Mm. Um, and so if you are in the middle of that as a farmer, landowner, person working on the land, you are in the middle of those interesting conversations mm. and you can put yourself in a position where you can feel that you are positively contributing to all of those things um, uh, in a way that I think perhaps people didn't before feel mm. they felt they were sort of beleaguered into this kind of treadmills of or whatever um, uh, another terrible metaphor treadmills of, of, of just producing food in a very kind of monotonic kind of way to a set of parameters yeah and as now a, you as can a commodity be, as a commodity now yeah. you can celebrate your the, you know the biodiversity in your hedges they're not just yeah. a problem to you So in terms of your your environmental lawyering side, um, where, where do you think we're going in terms of maybe the private sector's involvement in agriculture um, and this idea that you're buying carbon, for example, and, and carbon markets? It, is that something which gives you some hope or do you think we're going to go down another rabbit hole with it? Um, well, on the carbon market stuff, I, mean, I think, I think um, uh, people buying carbon credits is a sort of... Um, False promise. It's a short-term fix, and it's yeah. a false promise. Um, very often, because the carbon credits they're buying are not real, they're not real credits. You know, I, I could say to you, look, I've got this forest, and, and I will chop it down unless you give me a hundred pounds. Yeah. And you'll say, I saved that forest for a hundred pounds, and I say the same thing to the next bloke: give me a hundred pounds, I'll chop my forest down. I sell my forest ten times. Um, that's not. That's not really. You know, you can all feel happy, and your and your. I don't know. Um, passengers in your aeroplane can all feel happy, but that's not actually going to make the world a better place. It's not going to deal with a problem. So. Um, uh, I think those kinds of things are all about putting um, issues around climate change into people's minds and conceptions. And we really so need... kind of almost like a transition. It's a transition phase. thing, yeah. We yeah. need, I mean, you know, on, a, on climate change, we need individual behaviours to change, but we also need um, corporates to change and governments to change and international change. Um, you know, the whole idea of a carbon footprint is... is is great, but it's you know if we all, we could all be um, wonderful in ourselves, but that wouldn't wouldn't save us from climate change. We need a lot more than that. Um, those things are all about um, uh, enthusing people to push for bigger systems change and to tolerate bigger systems change. Um, and what I mean in terms of your day to day work, what do, what do you what do you focus uh, on? Well, a lot of my work as an environmental lawyer, since you ask, is um, I tend to work for NGOs. 
uh, a lot on environmental stuff, mostly on climate change, some on biodiversity. So I work with um, Friends of the Earth and WWF and uh, say on climate change type stuff um, and on with various roads, uh, anti-roads campaign groups and so on. Um, and I work with a group called Wild Justice, which is Chris Packham, Ruth Tingay and Mark Avery on biodiversity stuff around um, birds and pollution. And I'm working with some groups who are looking at uh, the impacts of uh, chicken farming on the River Wye, so around the farming rules mm. for water mm. and the apparent relaxation of the way in which you can spread um, chicken shit on your fields, which ends up in the River Wye, which leaves the River Wye... Um, in the status Decimated. in all of those things so yeah. um those are the kind of things i work on in my in my day job so this is um uh reasonably connected to what i do at the wakelands crazy end say, of things so so that i mean that sounds it sounds like a busy man lots of contacts lots of things outside does wakelands root you does it, are you rooted in this place is um it, is it your... well interestingly not i mean yeah, yes i suppose i am now i mean i you know i've started i've been doing the legal work for 30 years independently of wakelands i mean wakelands was my parents my family's kind of side project and I wasn't really involved I wasn't involved yet. I mean I helped to plant the original trees in 1994 yeah, yeah. but I haven't been probably under was it <laughs> well it was a cold wind, windy day in February 1994 my then partner and I stood in the muddy field thinking what the hell are we doing planting bloody trees into a wheat field what is this stupid idea and everybody else saying what is this stupid idea anyway they're now trees so it's fine yeah. um, uh, so in a way these things have kind of come together rather than rather than ever being it was never a plan it's just yeah. happenstance in a way but looking back, it looks like it's almost planned, doesn't it? It wasn't planned. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd asked me five years ago, you know, when my dad was still alive, what's going to happen to Wakelands? We wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said that, you know, yeah. we were going to end up here doing doing this. Yeah. Um, I mean, this this kind of version of the project literally came out. So when my dad, well, it was on his deathbed, literally in Norwich Hospital in 2019, and and um, he had made no, he'd done no succession planning because in his head he wasn't going to die. <laughs> it was never going to die and then suddenly suddenly he got pancreatic cancer and was given like a week to live oh, right. okay. um, uh, and so his only sort of thing was to, to he said um, hold a symposium invite everybody who knows Wakelands to come together um, to brainstorm um, what to do next so we did that we had a bunch of people lots of yellow post-it notes and flip charts and we came up with the idea of Wakelands as being a kind of continuing organic agroforestry project but as being a hub for agroecology um, and kind of that's what we've then ended up doing. So, you know, that was a sort of pin, um, I don't know what call it, doorway through which we came. Um, and here we are now. But if you'd asked me prior to that, we didn't really know what, what right. was going to happen. I wonder how many white lives turn out like that. Really. Yeah, well, it's I luck. I mean, I've had is, a very lucky yeah. life. So, yeah. <laughs> and I think I have as well in my career. And, and I've spent a long time in one organisation, but with so many different roles mm. and different things. Mm. It, it is, you look back and think, oh, this was, I almost planned it this way, but yeah. it, has, it has turned up. So I, I, I think, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I find the whole idea of land ownership is a very kind of bizarre one. So the idea, so I walk around these fields and I think I own, or my brother and I own these mm. fields. I don't really understand that conceptually what that means. It's a bit yeah. of existential, bizarre idea. How could you own this land? It's not my land, you know, whatever. So I see us as being very much custodians and, you know, it's a 500-year-old farmhouse and, and you very much feel like a custodian of a building like that. So we feel like custodians of this. And so that's why, partly why we're very, very interested in the kind of public aspects of it. Mm. And that's partly why we want lots of people to come here. And, and we partly also why we want all these enterprises and activities to be here. Because if we can use this land to provide other people with enjoyment and food and, um, uh, 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 and an economic activity and a life and all the rest of it, all the better. Mm. Um, I think too many farms and landowners and whatever regard their land as a kind of private economic commodity to be run in a way which just maxes their personal income. 
And I think we see this as being the opposite of that. Um, we would like to leverage it for the widest possible benefit. Um, see where that takes us. And my final point before we go outside and have a walk around, <clears throat> your personal mental health. You feel like yeah. somebody who's, who's actually positive, outward looking, engaged. Well, I'm lucky enough to have, I'm lucky enough to be, you know, you know, uh, I know privileged person in a privileged country at a privileged time with, with lots of resources and good health and lovely family and all those things. And those are a good start for having good mental health. Um, I also have the privilege of being involved in a range of interesting and yeah. fulfilling things. Um, some of which have come like the Wakelands project through the sheer um, bizarre happenstance of inheriting this fit this farm um, uh, but I do think um, you know, being at Wakelands is a big contributor to that being outdoors yeah. seeing you know um, you know we dug a pond last week you're sitting here in our, in our cowshed building looking at a pond that was dug three weeks ago um, within within days that pond filled up with water the, the swallows arrive every year and nest in our barns. They arrived on Thursday, literally on Thursday last week, and the next day they were drinking in that pond. You know, yeah. that makes me happy. So do you think you can transfer some of your happiness through your activities to other people if they pick up some of the things that are happening here and, and the sort of leadership shown by projects like yours, and I've been to lots of people who are doing different things, is that happiness shareable? Yeah, well, I try and be, um, uh, I can't help but be kind of enthusiastic uh, in talking to people and showing them around. Um, and I hope that's there's a bit of contagion in that. But also in the substance of what they're seeing, you know, the happiness of um, uh, 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 running an enterprise like this. And I'm not, as I said, I don't put this forward as a sort of um, one size fits all template, far from it. But as some of the components of what we're doing, um, I think farmers would be happier if they welcomed people to come to their farms, mm. whereas many farmers around here um, kind of, you know, only grudgingly open the footpaths and try and discourage people. I think um, um, the kind of isolated um, uh, farming that most people do is gets you must get you down. Mm. Um, um, so this is an opportunity. Um, you know, I hope people can kind of come here and read stuff and visit and talk to uh, not just me but all the other people who live and work here because there's a bunch of enthusiastic people who are baking and growing and yeah. weaving and you know looking after bees and all sorts of stuff well our experience in Cumbria is, is when we when we do things like hedge laying days and we get courses and, and yeah. bring people out the farmers love it yeah um, I've got one one farmer we're working with his, his, he's, he's on record now as saying his favourite time of the farm is when the balsam bashers come with mm. him alone balsam in his water okay. it's when they come yeah, yeah. the volunteers he said they're lovely people he buys cakes and they make tea and he sits yeah. down with them and he has a great day yeah yeah so I think this works absolutely yeah. well we get lots of visitors groups of students and volunteers and you know we've got um, agroforestry open weekend coming up in May with We'll have a couple of hundred, 300 maybe people come round and we have a community butterfly day. And this year we grow lentils. Um, I think Wakelands was one of the first UK lentil growers back in 2017. So we're having the first Wakelands Dahl Festival in August. Okay. You know, yeah. that will be yeah. lots of fun. Yeah. You know, we'll get people here to make dahl and see lentils growing. You know, UK grown organic protein. What's not to like? Connect people who like dahl and like lentils and have it in their cupboard <laughs> with what a lentil plant looks like. Yeah. Dave, thanks very much for your time this Pleasure. morning. It's been absolutely brilliant. Um, we're going to go for a walk around and, right. and see the trees. Of course. 15 years on from when I last saw them. Good. Thank All right. You. Nice to speak to you. Cheers. Thank you. David's passion and his desire to carry on the legacy that is Wakelands Farm is really palpable in this interview. 
is a keen mind. He's really engaged with local people. There's some fantastic products coming off the farm, which includes food, but it's also social and everything else. I loved going to Wakelands. It's a real treat. If you're in Suffolk, do go along. Next time, we meet Ian Bell. Um, Ian is absolutely passionate about soils and what's going on under the ground as well as on top of it. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Tree Amble podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music, so thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul, thank you.